Hey everyone! Welcome to Journey to the West. I'm Jay and I'm joined here with Sen. Hi everyone, I'm Sen. And today we're gonna tackle a topic that is a little more ideological, but we want to be able to explain it in a way that's systematic. It's going to be the basically the feminization of the Orient. So we're going to talk about Orientalism and uh, gendered racism and all that fun stuff. Before we start, we have a couple of announcements. The first is this great article that Christine wrote in response to the college bribery scam that we mentioned before in previous pod, uh, basically on how our accomplishments as POC are devalued. And uh, it also dismantles the model minority, which is pretty cool. We'll leave the link below. Also, Diana from Plan A gave us a shout out on their most recent podcast. And she also wrote a great interview with fellow comedian Joe Wong. We'll drop that link in the description below as well. That was pretty cool. And uh, he talks a lot about how important it is to, as Asian Americans, speak up for ourselves about our situation. So, now that the announcements are out of the way, let's dive right in. So let's start with defining what Orientalism is. A very basic description. Orientalism is the stereotypical representation of, in our context, Asia, that embodies a colonialist attitude. Basically, Orientalism depicts the Orient negatively as this monolithic, irrational, psychologically weak, and feminine non-European other. And in contrast, the West is seen as positive, rational, psychologically strong, and masculine identity. If you've heard of the phrase, the winner's right history, that pretty much applies here. Those who conquer end up using their own bias to paint themselves in a positive light and those who they conquered a negative one in order to justify the violence, the exploitation, and the social inequality they impose upon the other. So it doesn't necessarily have to be Asia. It could really just be anyone who is considered the other. And this term and the study of Orientalism was coined by Edward Said, the author of the book Orientalism. And he really dove into how representations of Asia are meant to reinforce or affirm a dominant or superior European identity over non-European cultures and peoples. He also recognized, and this was in 1978, I think it was written, that media like literature, and today we add film, TV, and all of that, social media as well, is a carrier or a vehicle for spreading this ideology. And that Western thinkers, because they're so entrenched in the dominant culture, are largely unable to recognize this bias because it surrounds them 
they benefit from it. And it basically seeks to recreate itself. So it's really difficult to see outside that structure when you're just embedded in it. So in other words, Orientalism is the cultural or social violence that we spoke about that justifies direct and systemic violence in the hierarchy of violence that we've discussed before. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to add to that, Zen? I watched this like little doco on Orientalism, which you can find on this website called Canopy. So as long as you have a library membership or you can like access a library from uni, you can watch all these videos for free. But he mentioned in the doco that he's um, a Palestinian um, American and his research has a lot to do with um, finding his own identity and not so much like defining who he is or what his culture is, but more so in relation to racism in the West. But he talked about how growing up, he would see all these like really weird caricatures of the Middle East, which would be in the form of something like Aladdin or really orientalist imagery of like people in turbans sitting in the desert and all that all that and it really seeks to um really extract any core humanity of the people because it has really nothing to do with the lived experiences or the the everyday person it has a lot to do with this weird caricature of how the west imagine orientals as they would call them we remain this caricature and it's always stagnant there's no progression so we're always seen as this primitive image that and i think if we're looking at like east or southeast asia it's a little bit different from the context he talks about there was this like kind of short doco on youtube called techno orientalism and it kind of goes into how like East Asia specifically occupies this very technologically advanced um, space, but we're still beholden to these very traditional backwards values, conservative Asian values that make us very, um, you know, backwards. Yes, basically, I think this is a good way to tell the difference between honest cultural exchange and just having ideas imposed upon you because it's not like they're trying to learn about us. They're just imposing this idea of what they think we're like, like this caricature of a culture and of a people. And so that thing, it doesn't really evolve. It, yeah. It, it's so far removed from like the reality though. That's like, obviously when we look at images of like Asians in like mass media, Mm. There's always a disconnect. It's also like um, uh, kind of off topic, but like Fenty Beauty, the the makeup range by Rihanna. Um, they recently had this highlighter called like Geisha Chic or something like that. Like this, and it's like it's such a small thing, but like this whole like imagery of say Asian women too. It's like 
it's so like hypersexualized and foreign. It's so far removed from who we are as people globally. But anyway, it's getting off topic. And the the also the fact that they're using that to sell their products means that it's so recognizable and almost universal mm-hmm. because of the cultural hegemony that people see that and they immediately know what that company's going for. Yeah, it, it's kind of like uh, there's people that might not understand like what's wrong, and it's like it's just the implications. It's like these remnants that can never leave us, our our society. Mm-hmm. It, we're basically being used. Mm-hmm. And uh, to bring it to historically how Orientalism has played out and justified all kinds of shit, uh, like, you know, from the modern day advertising stuff to back during the colonial and imperial sex trade, sex trafficking, which we've spoken about in a previous pod at length. Uh even going so far back as the Asian slave trade, in which Asians were actually sold by the Portuguese as intelligent hard workers, as well as sex slaves, as you do. Uh, Also, every war waged in Asia by Western powers has been one of dominion and of control and of, you know, trying to extract resources or push their own uh, socioeconomic interests Everything from the Opium Wars to the Secret War has been out of an Orientalist mindset. And even you know, something we were talking about the other day, uh, like me and Zen, the criminalization of homosexuality in Asia. There's actually a really great article that you found that talked about how historically Asians were actually pretty open to same-sex relationships, and it wasn't until the colonists came that they basically fucked everything up, because that was a Victorian-era social norm Mm -hmm. that was imported, and so everybody closed up when they adopted these Western ideals, and now because the narrative is that the West is progressive and that Asia is backwards, we still have this ingrained in us that, you know, Asia finally legalizing same-sex marriage and things like that, or being accommodating to other sexualities or gender identities is a Western concept when it really was not. Because, like, the article details a lot of how, I mean, I wouldn't call it comparable to, say, like, being openly, like, LGBT positive but people were just more or less didn't care as much. Like, it existed, but it was never, like, heavily criminalized. And it and I think the issue is with um, colonialism, a lot of, like, religious doctrine was kind of put in place. And homosexuality being, you know, a Christian, like, doctrine. So they would impose this this like criminalization that it doesn't exist within like Asian culture too much. There's very little history of like direct persecution, like a witch hunt for, you know, queer people. But this was like a inherent demonization. Like I know this is a very small thing, but in Vietnamese, 
um, like the de- the gay derogatory slang for gay people is literally French, you know, in French in origin. So I think that these types of like problematic and homophobic tendencies is very much like colonial, but I think a lot of people think that it's some kind of inherent Asian thing where we're inherently racist towards each other and we're inherently homophobic, and that's completely wrong. Again, that doco with Edward Said, he did um, mention like colonialism. Before it was more about resource extraction, but he cites like Napoleon's, um, you know, Napoleon trying to conquest Egypt as like the first time where colonists actually brought to like, um, like philosophers, historians, botanists, all these like educated people to go over and survey the area to understand the place they're trying to colonize to not only Mm. take resources, but try to ideologically change them. And that's what colonialism is. So most of it being like religion and like expounding homophobia and also Mm. something as like small as like the sexualization of like um, women's breasts, for example, like a lot of this, like the photo archive stuff I've been looking at of colonized women, especially Asians, it's like the the exposed breasts being like very sexualized, and like the fact that some of these women also, it's part of just their traditional like dress, like they just go topless. That's that's just how it is. It's seen as like a primitive thing as well. Because I think they cited some time, like, during the Indonesian government, like, the Dutch weren't too interested in, like, changing their ideology as much. But later they they made, they made this whole project where they banned women from showing their nipples out because he was, like, the president at the time was very fearful of how the country would look as a primitive nation. So that's something else. Oh, that sounds like internalized racism yeah well yeah i think we get the idea that historically this has been like the bread and butter of orientalism is to extract and modify and exploit native cultures and in the modern day it might not seem so obvious but orientalism is very much alive and well um, as you mentioned in ads and stuff. It's rampant in media, whether that's the hypersexualization of Asian women or the fact that Asian entertainers in the West are seen as emotionally inferior to white people. So we're too robotic to be cast in roles of any importance in TV or film. Uh, we're disproportionately targeted for violent crimes because of the perception that we're weak, which is an Orientalist concept. Uh, as I've written about before for an article for Next Shark, that was my first article out that covered hate crimes that Asian Americans experience. Every other race is victimized the most by their own race, except for Asians, who are most often attacked by non-Asians. Uh, 
It also comes up in education. For instance, if you're aware of the whole college admissions scandal, the New York Times found that Asian American applicants consistently scored lower on assessments of personality, which includes characteristics like likability and being widely respected. So we're basically emotionally inferior to, which means culturally inferior, and also really, really obvious in the workplace, the bamboo ceiling. Asians are seen as inferior leaders and least likely of all races to be promoted to upper management positions, specifically Asian women, as noted by the Ascend Foundation Leadership Study. And uh, something that that also brings me to is a very interesting thing that I noticed when I was looking up information about this topic. Because of Orientalism, Asian men are feminized, like the rest of the Orient, and are basically only seen as men through a Western lens, in name only and not in practice. And I'm going to explain that a little bit. There's a variety of studies out there that already detail how women in positions of authority are viewed more negatively than their male counterparts. They face disproportionately more criticism, and that criticism is specifically less likely to be constructive and more likely to be in the form of personal attacks. This is from a phenomenon that's been dubbed the double bind, in that women who are seen as nice and well-liked aren't taken seriously, while women who are assertive are seen as bitchy and rude. In a similar way, Asian men are viewed as non-threatening until they occupy positions of leadership or act in an assertive manner. And one thing that came to mind thinking about this was how David Chang, the, uh, I guess, celebrity chef now, he has a Netflix show called Ugly Delicious, which we also did a pod on previously. But I recall reading a lot of kind of nasty reviews of that show that criticized how he was acting, specifically a bunch of salty white viewers, both men and women, were calling him rude and accusing him of being overbearing when he was just being assertive. Like if a white chef had done the exact same thing or said the same thing in the same way, he wouldn't have been getting the same amount of shit. And I feel like it's just because he is elevated to a position of authority in that show. And also because he was not placating white people in certain ways. He was challenging the notion of cultural appropriation in a way that didn't make people feel comfortable, specifically white people. Well, the funny thing is, like, a lot of the people he talked to were his friends, so I just saw that as, like, oh, like, you know, friendly banter for a lot of the time. Because I didn't, Mm. the chefs, the white chefs on the show, they didn't look really offended by anything he did. And when he went to Asia, again, he went to see his mentors and, like, people he had spoken to, and they didn't really see his very assertive personality as abrasive. I think that's very... Like, that's 
a perception of the audience they're projecting. Yeah, yeah. Because that's, that's just how we interact with people. And if they're not phased by it, then why are we? Which means it's something about us. And not specifically us, but specifically the white viewers, because that's who was complaining about that. But really, yeah, it feels like it's just a response to power. That whenever Asian men and women in general are in that position, because they're not supposed to have power socially, and this really fucked up hierarchy that we live in, in the society, Orientalism is meant to strip us of our power. So we are seen as threatening when we do have it, or perceive to have it, and we're then unlikable and seen as incompetent, and people want to push us out of those positions. This also reminds me of, I think we mentioned this before, portrayals of Vietnamese women during the Vietnam War. I remember Sen brought up a bunch of old pinup illustrations that like the U.S. military came up with in their official pamphlets about Vietnam that basically portrayed Asian women as like sexually available to them. I don't know if you wanted to elaborate. Yeah, it was interesting because, I mean, other than being disgusted, I had to look at these things, but it was interesting how they would characterize the men as like, you know, faceless villains and also characterize their whole campaign as some kind of like savior narrative while also engaging in all this fucking, you know, sex bullshit. For example, like the Aoyai, it has like a, like a long slit towards the side and they always drew women without the pants, even though we always wear pants with Aoyai. And they characterize it as some kind of inherent cultural like promiscuity that the women have, for example. The reality is that there were so many women who were fighting in the war. And a lot of the mass media also, although they didn't make the women over-sexualized, they would always post them in positions of like um, being frail or fragile being victims, like carrying the children out. And obviously that is reality, but the women who were fighting with guns in hand, whether they were South or North, you know, Vietnamese, they were like very subdued. They were never really shown in the media. And despite like this stereotype of like Vietnamese women being weak, like continuously being like you know challenged by again literal soldiers in the field like the men the the, the white men the american men just still saw them as this, this oversexed image and that is just how like powerful orientalism is that it literally reshapes people's perceptions and therefore the reality because for example like um it would say like cited a lot of books he read from poets and authors that he actually liked and when he read about their view of the orient at the time he was like wait this looks familiar and then he would flip to another book and he would realize that 
this like book that was published like 50 years earlier has the same fucking like rhetoric. It doesn't matter if these people like go all the way to Asia and see it firsthand. Their eyes are like, you know, tainted in a sense. Like they can't see people for who they are. It's just you're you're this caricature. And I know that sounds like somewhat like, oh, it, like it's just a stereotype. It's like breaking stereotypes. It's very, people are very casual about that, but it's literally racism, <laughs> you know? And that actually reminds me, like, just popped into my head. Come to think of it, like every story that you read or every video clip that you see or tend to see about the Vietnam War, it focuses on the suffering. You don't really see images the victimhood. of, yeah, it's, it's all about the victimhood and not about people fighting back to protect their homeland. So even stuff that's like anti-war will still play up that Orientalist narrative of like, oh, they're defenseless and weak and we need to save them. Mm-hmm. Or just some bullshit. I'm trying to remember uh, this this Italian philosopher that he mentioned in the docker. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, I think it's interesting because he mentioned that there's this Italian philosopher that said something along the lines of like history being part of this like, you know, abstract inventory that a person has. And when we say person, we mean like a people, right? And the thing is, we can't just have this narrative that history is supposed to like, you're we are the victim and you're the, the perpetrator. But it has to be like us trying to, you know, take back our history and understand it and and it become part of our inventory. But be able to use that as as tools to propel us forward. The problem with making us perpetual victims and reveling in this like tragedy porn is like it it disempowers us. It doesn't allow us to progress as people. And then it again it, it gets us stuck into this orientalist uh mindset of always being stuck in the same place. And and I think for Vietnamese people, it's the Vietnam War. Like, when people see us, it's the Vietnam War. When we look at the fucking racist restaurants, it's the Vietnam War. We're stuck in the same, like, period of, like, the 1960s, 70s. When Vietnam, ha- it's been, like, fucking, like, how many years since the Vietnam War? But that's what we have to do. We have to be able to, like, empower ourselves with our history and not become these victims of mm, it. That's a really great point. And I found the name of the philosopher, Gramsci, who might sound familiar if you've read content on PAV, but Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah. it's a great point that we're stuck in place because of this. And so the goal is to transcend that. And because culture is a living thing, it's not something that occurs in a vacuum or in a snapshot of time. It's something that grows and changes and evolves along with people who are also alive. Yeah, and we don't realize how much culture and history has really impacted us. Like, a lot of people just feel like it's irrelevant, but it's literally shaped who we are. Um, Even if you don't directly feel it, there's just so much 
I guess, history that we need to learn. A lot of like us who are, especially of the us who are colonized, we've lost a lot of it. And we really have to like try to comb through all this like like history that we need to get back. Especially when I'm looking at all this like colonial literature and it's like trying to decipher mm-hmm. what is like who we are and what is just racism. Which kind of brings us to a new topic moving forward and thinking about having an identity beyond these things. I think that one of the ways to move forward is to kind of remodel what intersectionality means for us as Asians, specifically through the route of Asian feminism. Now, I know that a phrase can trigger a lot of people for reasons, but when you actually consider the foundational ideology that is necessary to overcome this shit, you need an Asian feminism that's decolonized, that prioritizes the fact that we are also our history and that automatically makes us political. Whether we want to be or not, our bodies are politicized. So we have to account for things like gendered racism, not just that Asian women face, but also the racism that men of color also face, specifically Asian men, and demand solutions to the problems that this causes. It's We can't just you know, sweep stuff under the rug or passively wait for time to pass and fix the world because as you mentioned before and as Gramsci said before, Things like, you know, the stereotypes produced by Orientalism turn us into snapshots frozen in time. So time doesn't pass for us, right? We're, we're static unless we do something about it. We need to take action. So it's really important for us to confront these things directly and publicly, get them out in the open and force at least an acknowledgement that there's a problem which is the first step toward change. I'd also like to say that, you know, anybody who does want to make an impact for the better needs to not be so afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to make waves, right? Uh, There's this bumper sticker that's super cliche that says, well-behaved women never make history. I don't even remember who, the quote is from, but you see it everywhere. But it's it's true because you have to be loud about shit, right? You have to make us think about things, and this is something that we've emphasized over and over before, and something that we try to model ourselves, especially if you follow us uh, on Twitter. Uh, the great thing about making waves is that when we act together as a group those waves become an ocean and there's power as a collective. So I hope that those of you listening feel inspired to take action yourselves. 
I hope that we can all move forward together and make things better for all of us. It's kind of a cliched thing to say, but it's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I cringed a little mm. bit when I said the waves become an ocean. No, because a lot of people, the problem is we have to move away from this default cynicism of like, what's the point? And I'm like, yeah, what is the point? If you're If you're literally just sitting here and just like, you know, wallowing in self-pity and this victimhood that has been imposed on us, then, like, nothing's going to change. Change doesn't just happen. It has – you have to struggle for it. People fight for it. People die for it all the time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the least you could do is confront it, you know. That's, like, really bare minimum when you look at what people have done in history. And, I mean, what we're doing is pretty bare minimum just talking about it. But mm-hmm. – I mean, at this point, bare minimum looks pretty good because it feels like when you talk to people, they just close, like shut down about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to acknowledge Orientalism or racism because it it like literally reshapes your your worldview and your reality because perception is the reality. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people just want to like, continue living this like carefree life of like I don't see color and race is just a construct and all that other bullshit. Yes, a construct that harms us significantly in our daily lives. But yeah. And I really feel like, you know, I know everybody hates the words Asian feminism these days, but if you want to form an identity that's in opposition to the real problem, which is the white patriarchy, which accounts for imperialism, cultural hegemony, as well as sexism, and specifically the kind that we undergo, it makes sense to say Asian feminism, right? And obviously, you know, we've critiqued current day iterations and what they lack, you know, what they do well and what they do not, and inspirations for moving forward. I feel like we can really make something here. That there is hope for the future in creating something of value and something that lasts in that sense. I'm still figuring shit out, but we hope that you can join us on this journey. Uh, Did you have anything else to add? Any final thoughts? Read history. I mean, it's it's kind of like when you read history, I advise you all to be cautious because you just realize how much you've mm-hmm. lost, even though you've never known what you've lost until now. And it's obviously, it gets you into this like dark mindset of like this victimhood, but you just have to be able to try and stomach it. I mean, the thing is, I haven't really read much on the Vietnam War personally, because like, I don't think I'm ready for that yet. but. For all the other stuff, you just have to like try and like consume it and make it part of your being and then try to utilize it and empower yourself. It's really easy to get into this victimhood mentality of like Whitey destroyed everything, which they did. Let's I mean we we can always do another portal on how Whitey destroyed everything, but 
um, we could also try and empower ourselves with it. That's definitely the the harder part, but it's the productive way to channel that energy. And if you're angry, feel angry. Yeah, but it's and use that anger. the The problem is, it takes a lot of like work to get to that point. But uh, it gets easier when we're doing it together. So anyway, we'll leave you with that. Um, hopefully this was a more positive message because we've been really trying to kind of shift the tone into a more productive one and a more hopeful one because a lot of the stuff sounds hopeless, but it doesn't have to be. And it begins with us. So uh, thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out all the stuff that we're plugging below, as well as some sources that we used here today. And uh, we'll see you next time.